0: Welcome to the podcast of Fairmount Presbyterian Church in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, where we feature our worship sermons. Listen again to past sermons from home, when you are traveling, or wherever you are. Listen in if you need a moment of reflection, inspiration, and love. Yoncalla is a rural town tucked into the southwest corner of Oregon. It's a small town with just a tick over 1,000 residents. And if you drove through Yankala today, you probably wouldn't think much of it. It looks pretty much like every other sleepy rural community you've ever passed through. But about 100 years ago, something rather remarkable happened there, something so spectacular that it prompted The New York Times to write a featured story about Yankala, an article The Times titled, Sex Uprising in Yankala. Have, have your attention now? <laughs> in the early 1900s, Yankala was actually a, a relatively thriving town, but it also had its share of small-town problems. There was a shortage of streetlights, cracking sidewalks, and shoddy public outhouses, Cars were an increasing presence in the town, but the rules of the road weren't really being enforced very well. And in spite of the fact that Oregon had been under prohibition since 1915, sounds like it wasn't exactly hard to find a drink there. Like most every town in the country at that time, Yonkala was run by men, an all-male government, a mayor and five city council members. And the Yankala Women's Study Club, a book club there, started to take notice of those mounting issues in their town, and they hatched a surreptitious campaign to do something about it. So on November 2nd, 1920, the citizens of Yankala went to the polls for their local election. An election that many incumbents probably expected was a mere formality to refresh their terms in office. But the result was a surprise. Five of the women in the study club swept the election for city council. And Mary Burt took her place as the new mayor. Apparently, the women had organized their entire campaign without the knowledge of their husbands or any other men in the town. And so, in the end, the only people left surprised and confused were the men who had quite obviously underestimated their opponents in the wake of her victory mayor-elect Mary Burt was quoted in the paper saying we intend to study conditions and do all in our power to give Yankala a good efficient government at the worst we can't do much worse than the men (laughs) I love that quote I love this whole story really At the time, it must have shattered people's notions of gender roles. And I'm sharing this story of Yankala with you today because I think that our scripture passages this morning play a similar role in forcing us to think differently about God and gender. We Christians say that all people are made in the image of God, but the reality is that for most of us, the default image of God is male. Well, I'm here to tell you something this morning that may shock you. God is not a man. In our passage from Luke 13 today, Jesus uses female imagery for God, a simile that liken, likens him to a hen gathering her chicks under her wing to protect them, to give them refuge. And for me, Jesus' words here in Luke's gospel are a reminder that if women are made in the image of God, then God most certainly has feminine aspects and qualities. And there's plenty of biblical evidence to demonstrate that Jesus thought about women in ways that clashed with the culture of his day. In fact, Jesus consistently subverted cultural norms about gender. When some of the disciples find Jesus talking with a Samaritan woman at the well, Scripture says that they're shocked because cultural norms dictated that men didn't talk to women in public. And just a few verses before our reading this morning, Jesus heals a woman and calls her a daughter of Abraham, a radical title given that only Jewish men were referred to as sons of Abraham And Jesus is implying that she and all women have equal worth and inheritance in God's family. Mary Magdalene is lifted up as the model disciple in John's gospel when she anoints Jesus' feet and that Jesus says that she, a female disciple, is the only one who understands what's about to happen to Jesus in Jerusalem. And finally, in Luke 11... As Jesus is passing through a crowd, someone shouts out to him, Blessed is the mother who gave birth to you and who nursed you. And Jesus responds, Blessed rather are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. For me, this is one of the most powerful statements on gender in all of Scripture because it implies that the worth of Jesus' mother Mary, or any woman for that matter, is not simply in their ability to bear children and raise them, but instead their worth comes from God. And they are to be judged by the same measure as men, their obedience to God and their love for God. In his repeated challenges to traditional gender roles, Jesus signaled to us that the way society views women needs to change if we are ever going to witness the fullness of God's beloved community among us. And what better way to begin to change how we think about women than to use some feminine names and images and pronouns for God? So what does this image of Christ, as a hen gathering her chicks under her wing, teach us about God. It reveals that God's love for us is as fierce as a mother hen protecting her young. It reveals that God's grace for us is an expansive grace that surrounds us, like wings that shelter us and give us refuge. It reveals that God is our mother who will never abandon us, never give up on us, no matter what we've done or left undone. Jerusalem was about to hand over Jesus for crucifixion, and the Pharisees had come to warn Jesus that Herod the fox wanted Jesus' head just as he had taken John's. And yet Jesus kept marching towards Jerusalem in spite of everything. His love was still burning for them, and he was willing to die to shelter them under his wings. I paired our gospel reading this morning with the story of Rahab that Lindsay read from Joshua chapter 2, because I think it further illuminates the image of the fierce love of Mother God dwelling within a woman. Rahab was a Canaanite a Gentile living in the land that the Israelites called the promised land before they arrived there. And the Israelites were camping on the other side of the Jordan River, preparing to cross it and to by force take the land that God had promised them. But before they did that, Joshua sent spies from each tribe to bring back a report. Rahab encounters two of the spies and she welcomes them into her home and gives them a place to stay. But soon the news of the spies' whereabouts reaches the king of Canaan, and he demands that Rahab hand them over. But like Jesus, Rahab wasn't afraid of the king. And like Jesus, she provided refuge. Rahab took the spies under her wing, literally hiding them under the thatching of her roof. And what's more, Rahab seizes the opportunity to provide refuge for her own family too, negotiating with the spies to spare the lives of her family members when the fighting soon begins. Because of the refuge that she provided, Rahab is listed alongside Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and others as the great exemplars of faithfulness in Hebrews 11 it's hard to over-exaggerate the significance of her story. The notion that the model of the fierce love of God the protector is embodied by a female Canaanite prostitute is meant to be shocking. And it turns upside down our patriarchal ideas about who God is and how God moves among us. Earlier I told you that God is not a man. Well, here's the thing. God isn't a woman either. In the words of the womanist biblical scholar, Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney, no one gender can contain God. God is trans, transgressive, transgender, transcontinental, transcontin- transnational, transreligious, God's love transverses and encompasses all things, Gaffney says. And this God who transverses all expressions of gender loves us with an expansive love that gives us refuge, that protects us always, especially in moments when we feel most vulnerable. We see the embodiment of that love in the Christ, the mother hen who is continuing to Jerusalem on our behalf. And we see it in Rahab too, giving refuge to God's people in danger. We are the recipients of that loving refuge. And the way we show our thanks to God is by offering that refuge to our neighbors, to those in our midst. Fairmount has a history of providing safe space to those who need it. In 2016, you formed the Refugee Task Force, and thanks to the love and leadership of many people in this congregation, refugees have called this church their home. Even if you haven't been involved up to now, there are opportunities to get engaged. There are many ways to volunteer with one of our local partner organizations, Amos, Americans Making Immigrants Safe, or the Heights Friends of Immigrants. We can also support our brother Jonas, a refugee from the Democratic Republic of Congo who's living in our church apartment right now. You may see Jonas walking around Fairmount. Welcome him and make him feel that he belongs in this community too, because it is his community. And if you're interested in learning more about how you can get involved with supporting refugees here in our own community, you can talk with Gene Silek. Friends, this Lent, I invite you to give thanks to God, our mother hen, our protector, whose expansive love fills us to the brim with the kind of grace that can save our lives And then I invite you to respond to that fierce love and expansive grace. To respond by providing the same refuge to others that God gives to us. Amen. We thank you for listening to a worship episode from Fairmount Presbyterian Church. Revisit this podcast site weekly for new worship episodes. Have a beautiful and blessed day.